0: We're going to start a new series today for Christmas, just for the next few weeks, uh, before we get back in in January to our series through numbers. This series is called Waiting for Christmas, Waiting for Christmas. Um, Why is waiting so awful? I think maybe Christmas season uh, reminds us how awful waiting is. Did anybody go out Black Friday? Was there a little bit of waiting involved in some of those things? Yeah, I mean, maybe not as much as in years past, but there's long lines and, you know, there was a couple stores that we went past that were like, there was a line outside of the store to get into the store and stuff like that. So waiting, we, nobody likes, you know, if you could just get me one thing for Christmas, could you get me like waiting, a lot of waiting for Christmas? Like nobody wants that, right? But I do think that this may be the one time of year where waiting actually has some positive connotation to it. I mean, Through the whole month, as we wait for Christmas, we get to listen to Christmas music, we get to look at Christmas decorations, there is a string of Christmas programs, and even Christmas parties that get go down. So in the waiting for Christmas, we get to extend this celebration, isn't some of what makes Christmas Eve and Christmas morning so amazing that we've anticipated it? For so long that we have waited for it and that builds and builds and it gives us a chance to prepare for it and to to express our our hearts of love for one another in a bigger way. Because it's not just, oh, by the way, today's Christmas. Oh, man, I forgot. Right? Did anybody like, oh, I forgot it was Christmas. It's because we are anticipating it. The waiting has a blessing for us. In the writings of Scripture, we notice a similar reality for God's people about the the first Christmas, about the coming Christmas. Of Jesus. God's people waited for a Savior, not just for a month, but for centuries. We go way, way back in, in the, the Old Testament writings and a Savior is promised. And they're like, yeah, we need a Savior. This place is a mess. But the Savior never seems to come. They waited And they waited. Beyond anything they could have imagined was good, they waited. Prophecies are made. Promises are given. Processes are playing out. And they build towards this moment when Jesus is born. I think there is a lot of crossover for us with those God's people of old, with those saints of old, waiting for Jesus. Truth be told, we are waiting for Jesus in our lives right now. There are some spots in our life where we are like Jesus. Would you please show up now? Is anybody? Is this anybody? Like I'm, I'm waiting for you. But this would be a good moment. Any time now. What is God doing? In the waiting, just like them, we often feel like we are waiting beyond reason, that God's goodness has somehow stretched too thin and snapped. If God is really good, He would have shown up a little while ago. We wait in processes that seem to take forever and maybe a lot of times don't even seem like there's any progress in those processes We feel like the promises of God that used to stir our souls and bring us to life have faded. And when we take another hit in life, they're even harder to hold on to. Christmas is a great season to take a look at how fundamental waiting is for believers. And so that's what we're going to do because God does good in our waiting. God does not waste your waiting ever. God does good in our waiting. We can be people of joy and peace in our waiting because Christmas reminds us about it. Even if I forget that God is going to do good, even if I don't feel like God is doing good, the Christmas story and and, and several stories of people waiting for the Christmas story is a story of long processes, but the guarantee of hope that will become realized at the end of it. And I think for us, we need some reminders of that. We're going to close with communion today. And, and one of the things about communion that always gets me is we're, we're going to use communion today at the end to say, how does Jesus look at us? How does Jesus look at the other people in this room? How does Jesus... When I get off, when I get frustrated, when I get stuck, I'm, to, I'm just... This is really not in my notes, but I'm just going to share this anyway. In my ministry, if I did not believe this, I would have given up a long time ago. If I did not use this, I would have tossed in the towel. If I didn't believe what we're talking about today. And the way that I keep on track a lot of times is ask myself, what do I imagine Jesus thinks about this? Because if Jesus thinks something different than I do, one of us is wrong. Yeah, that's, that's the part that I wrestle with sometimes. One of us is wrong. I think it probably is not Jesus. Right? It's a correcting mechanism. And so communion is one of those times where we get our heads straight about what Jesus thinks. Um, over Thanksgiving and, and in the past few weeks, our, our littlest grandson, Bentley, has started giving us kisses. Right? Right? He just turned six months old, so he's decided that now is the time to express his love and give us kisses. Well, kisses is maybe too generous of a term. It's more like full slob, you know what I mean? He grabs you with both hands, he pulls you in. Most of the time for me, it's my nose he gets, right? And everything is wet, right? But we love it. We think it's awesome. Now, if anybody else in my life did that to me, I'm, please do not today. (laughs) Right? It would be incredibly gross. But his mess doesn't bother me. Why not? Love changes things, doesn't it? It changes how willing we are to be up close and personal with someone's mess. Christmas is a story about how love made Jesus Not be bothered by our mess, but instead come up close and personal with us. Seems to me that since love changes how we look at people's mess, maybe it should change how we look at the people in our lives. We are called to be people of love, and if we are, then messy people in our lives shouldn't be surprising. They shouldn't be off-putting. Maybe we shouldn't give in to aggravation and irritation. Maybe messy people should be a part of our lives. I'll just take it to church. Messy people are going to be in our church. If you came to our church saying, well, this is where the spiritual people are, well, yes, but you know what else? This is where the messy people are. And if that bothers you, I'm going to just tell you, we have always expected real people to be all through our church. Real people. And that means real messes. I'm not saying we want to stay stuck in those messes. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how coming to Jesus, you you, you find yourself into transformation. I'm not saying, well, I'm just a mess and Jesus loves me anyway. I'm not talking about that, right? We know that there is life that, that shows up in us when we embrace how he's calling us to change and transform. But God never does it all at once. Every single one of us is still a mess that God is working on. God does not even fix our messes in the order in which we wish He would, right? Or other people's messes. Parents, I'm talking to you. God does not fix other people's messes in the order in which we think He should. So maybe your agenda for what needs to get changed in your children is different than God's agenda. There will be messy people in every church, whether you are allowed to say it or not. There will be messy people in every church. Maybe love would make us look at other people's messes differently. Maybe this idea that love changes how we look at messy people would make us look at our own mess differently. If we really understood and believed what God does with messy people, because you and I, let's be honest, we are frustrated with our messiness. We get aggravated with ourselves. We run out of patience with ourselves, with our problems, with our questions, with our doubts, with the words that we wish we could take back, with decisions that we wish we could unmake, with the memories we wish we could forget. We get tired of our own messiness. But what if God is able to use me anyway? What if my mess doesn't stop God from pouring his power into me? This is the gospel. This is why it's good news. What if God's power is big enough to overcome my mess, even to redeem it in my life? Maybe if we could believe that, we could find God at work in our lives. Maybe if we weren't so scared of what seemed unwanted or undesirable, messy, maybe we could see What God has to say about us, I guarantee, I guarantee you, God is at work in what you wish wasn't a part of your life. In your mess. God is at work right there. It's not because he's ignoring it. Like, I'm just going to pretend that's not there. It's because it's there. And I want to show that to you through the story of Christmas. So we're going to go to Matthew 1, and we're going to read maybe the driest part of the Christmas story. Yay! The genealogy. And I want to show you something in this genealogy. As we read this list of names, and I'm going to read them for you because this is church and we read the Bible. This may seem weird and boring to you. First thing I want to say is it wasn't weird and boring to first century Jews. This was a normal way that you introduced the story about someone. You told about their history and their genealogy. We kind of skim over it. But today I want you to see this is not just a list of names it is including a bunch of stories that we find elsewhere specifically the stories that we recognize are mostly stories about people who had major failures and huge messes in their life so one, we're going to talk about that for a few minutes, and then we're going to apply it, and then we're going to have communion, all right? So let's read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. It says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Bijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah Thus, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. All right, now, that's a lot of names that you and I don't know. Maybe if you're expecting, you've just gotten some ideas, you know, we're going to have a Zerubbabel here shortly, right? You guys read those books anyway, so we might as well read the Bible version of it, right? Can't wait to dedicate Zadok, you know, like, it's going to be awesome. Anyway, as you read that story, What you notice is that Matthew includes some detail here and there. And he starts with the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He starts by saying, Jesus, the promised one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And and if you think about what we know, we read, if you follow along with our bookmark plan this year, we read 1 and 2 Samuel. Think about the first name mentioned, King David. We know David's story, a man of powerful faith, especially as he faced Goliath and as he ran as a fugitive from King Saul. We know some of David's story of big faith. But in 2 Samuel, we find a man whose choices and life and family spun out of control into messes that are so shocking and stunning. We would think if you and I were God, if we were writing the story, we would leave that part out or we would never talk about David again. Certainly not in a positive way. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Uh, Do you remember David? It starts with adultery that Matthew refers to right here in in, uh, verse 6 when he says David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. David had an affair with Uriah's wife. And that's how eventually Solomon came up one of his children. Not, Not the baby from that affair, but later on when he married her. And the reason he married her is because that adultery worked its way into murder. And the fallout from that murder and that sin was that his family was completely dysfunctional. There was incest in his family. Then there was murder in his family. Then there was a son who led a rebellion against him before his son was killed. It's a mess. I would say a huge mess and even worse, a public mess. Everybody in Israel knows about the mess of King David. It's playing out right in front of them. David's life was filled with amazing sin. And here we are a thousand years later, starting the story of the Savior with son of David. Well, Abraham, he's better, right? Certainly a man of great faith many times. But he's a man whose miracle son was named Isaac because both he and his wife thought it was a joke when God promised them Isaac. Because Isaac means laughter. So the rest of his life, and even now, here, thousands of years later as we're talking about Abraham had a son Isaac, Isaac, the very name Isaac, reminds us that Abraham did not believe God when God said, you're going to have a son. He laughed at God. Abraham's behavior towards his wife is horrible when he's afraid. He pretends she is a sister and he lets other powerful men take them into her harem because he doesn't want to get killed. Then he fathers a son with a slave woman and then later sends her away destitute. Great Abraham! Right? The Bible's not sugarcoating anything, but, but Matthew, as he's, as he's saying this, is telling us something. Abraham, by the way, is not the end of the mess. Isaac repeats his father's mistakes with his wife, and he raises two boys who have very little maturity or very little in- integrity, the younger one tricking, the older one tricking Isaac himself by pretending to be the older one so that he could get Isaac's blessing. The reason we say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob instead of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, according to the story in Genesis, is because Jacob was a liar and deceived his father. Yay! We still use Jacob's name as the name for God's people. Israel is another name for Jacob. We use his name to identify the people of God, this guy. And it didn't stop there. The story of Tamar that is mentioned here, when it says Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. If you know anything about Genesis 38, Tamar is a shocking story about incest, about prostitution. Judah, who goes and sleeps with Tamar, which w- who was married to two of his sons before they died, goes and sleeps with her, but he doesn't sleep with her thinking he is his daughter-in-law. He only thinks that she's a prostitute. So much better, right? And out of that union come these twins who are mentioned here in Matthew 1. Messy people everywhere. Then we have another, the prostitute Rahab, who's included as the mother of Boaz followed by Ruth, whose life was a mess in many other ways. She was a widow, a foreigner, she was destitute and dependent on the good graces of people with resources. She turns into the great-grandmother of King David. That's just the first section. Then you get to the second section, and we're like, what are all these names? Hezekiah, Ahaz, Jotham, Uzziah, I can't keep up with all of it. Yeah, but if you read uh, 1st and 2nd Kings, what you'd find is that these kings have a story. And all of the kings of the northern kingdom turn away from god these ones that are listed here which isn't even the whole list more than half of them totally reject god turn away solomon the biggest one which is the reason that this kingdom split right into rehoboam right like all of them they they one after the next after the next and it generally seemed to be that if you had a good king his son would be wicked. Like, for example, Hezekiah, one of the the most notably good kings in Judah's history, was the father of Manasseh. And when they talk about Manasseh, they say, there was no king who did as much evil in, in God's sight as Manasseh. The monarchy is a mess. Because it's people. What's the point? Why am I telling you all this? Why did we read all of those names? Those who read Matthew's gospel probably had some or all of these stories in their head. Matthew almost certainly did as he wrote this genealogy. And can you imagine as he's writing this genealogy and he said, Jesus came from this? Does that say anything to us? Does it make a point to us? As God's people waited for a Savior, They were supposed to be learning, and we are supposed to learn as well. That God's people will make messes. But never once does it stop God's plan. I'm telling you people, there is hope in this. God's people make bigger messes than I could even explain to you right now. Not minor ones, not like, oh, that was a little white lie. Oh, that was not such a big deal. God's people make a mess, but never once did they derail God's plan. Even those who were part of the biggest messes were included in some of the biggest parts. David, Abraham, God uses messy people. Because that's the only kind of people there are. Let's get honest, that is the only kind of people there are, messy people. Instead of defining us by our failure and our shame, it gets referred to as an example of God's grace and power, that we are washed clean and we find healing and hope through this Savior, Jesus. Some still don't believe it, well, my life is too big of a mess for God to heal. They live life convinced that they've blown it too big to come back from where they are. But waiting for Christmas itself is a reminder that we are never too far gone for God's mercy and grace. If you are a believer, God included you knowing all about you, your past, your present. And your future. And he chose to bring you into his family, to invite you in and to ask you to belong. You can choose to push that offer away. You can choose to to do it like he did it begrudgingly or believe that he didn't really mean it. But healing comes from understanding what this story tells us. That God includes messy people. That your mess is not a problem for him. That your mess has not derailed God's plan for your life. And I believe this to my core. This is not a small thing. This is absolutely 100% down deep in my soul that God uses messy people, not after they get cleaned up. He uses them in their mess because God is that great. God Includes messy people. He is not surprised. He is not limited by them. He can use them and they can play a huge part in God's miraculous plan because it's not about them. It's about the one who saves them. He doesn't just invite them as spectators or standing room over the people. Well, your mess is really big. You stay off here to the side and please don't make any noise. God doesn't do that. He gives them roles. Come step right into the spotlight. Step right into the main roles. I want to show people my power in your mess. So we can apply these to our own lives. And I hope we do. I hope that when we celebrate communion in just a minute that, that you apply this to yourself. But we can apply them to our relationships too to our friendships, to our partnerships, to our marriages, to our parenting, to our leadership, to our church family. If it is true that messy people still get used, if it is true that messy people are still included and still important in God's plan, then the people that I'm tired of may be God's provision in my life. Uh, I, you, I just lost you. I can tell. What? Yeah, the person that aggravates you the most, the mess that you are the sickest of, may be God's work happening right in front of you. And you are so self-righteous and so proud and so flustered and so sure that that needs to get out of your life that you can't see what God wants to do in your life. Maybe the person you'd like to run away from is exactly what God provided to do work in your life that you need. Maybe their choices don't doom your life. Maybe God could even use them to provide something that you'd miss without them. I know that takes a lot of faith, but that's what I'm asking you to. Think about this in church. Church kind of has a reputation for preferring, preferring neat and clean, right? If you come to church, you've got to look right, you've got to be right, you, got, you can't swear, you can't, like, but the reality is We're all messy. I've heard people say, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it, right? (laughs) Because no matter how you came to Jesus, no matter how long you've known him, you are still a messy person. Probably the places that you think you are the strongest are the places where people have to give you the most grace and you don't even know it. Messy people are in God's kingdom. Messy people are being used by God in our church every single day. How should we see them? Pride? Frustration? Point out their mistakes? Maybe what we should do is consider how God handles messy people and act like that. Because what I find in my messes is God pours out His grace on me beyond anything I deserve, makes me clean, and gives me life. And I am so grateful for it. So maybe I can afford to do that with others. Here's our reminder as we move to communion in just a second. There is no one beyond the reach of God's grace, and all of us know God because of His grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In this genealogy, what we see is that no one's mess stops God from His perfect plan. No one's mess stops God from His perfect plan. That is cause for joy and celebration and peace. And there is no circumstance or mess beyond God's power to work, to redeem, to save. Let God's people believe it and live it. I'm going to invite you to take a spot around the room as we prepare for communion this morning to close our service.